Well, hey, everyone. It was so good to be up at camp these last two weeks, and it's so great to be back with you as we get back into this important topic, this important conversation. We have got a whole lot to cover here today. Surprise! So let's dive right in. If you're taking notes, I want to invite, write, want to invite you to write this down. Compassion compels Christians to respond. Can I get an amen to that? That's just part of who we are. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, we're going to have this compassion that compels us to respond. That's why we do those retreats that we do. It's why we throw as much into them as we can. It's why we create these immersive experiences for our teens. Because as we've said so many times before, at least in my lifetime, I have never seen such intense pressures. I've never seen such high levels of stress and anxiety and depression. I don't remember seeing suicide levels spiking among 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds. So for us, our compassion compels us to respond. It compels us to act. Why are we doing this series? Why, are we, why, why have we invested more, more than a year to prepare for it, to try to do it really, really well? Why are we taking eight weeks, which is not enough, but why are we taking eight weeks of our, of, our, of our church calendar to have a series on identity because we care. And I'm not aware of anything right now. I'm not aware of any conversation out there right now that is affecting people more deeply than this one. I can't think of a topic that's having, um, it, causing more conflict or more confusion, more pain, more division than all of these issues related to identity and gender and for most of us, this is not a theoretical conversation. This is, this is personal. It's affecting our lives. It's affecting for many, many of you. It's affecting your life personally. It's affecting our work, our friendships, our schools, our sports, our entertainment, the sites we visit, the politics and the policies that govern us. And so, compassion compels us to try to do the best we can to respond to, to this, this call. As we said from the beginning of the series, we're going to do our absolute best to wrestle with difficult questions in a manner that is theologically sound, that's intellectually honest, and that is exceedingly gracious. We began this series three weeks ago by trying our best to lay a firm foundation. In week one, we reaffirmed our commitment as a church to anchor to the scriptures and to allow our community to really be shaped by them. As we worked our way through Psalm 139, we read that each one of us is fearfully and wonderfully made, that we are seen, that we are known, and that we're loved. And none of us have to walk alone. And then in week two, we went back to the beginning. We read about a God who formed us in his image, male and female. In week three, we looked at an event that's called the fall where instead of placing our full trust in our creator, we began to elevate other voices as more authoritative. Today is when we start turning the corner. Today we're going to look at the book of Matthew here, and we're going to see um, that Jesus began his ministry with these words. This is Matthew four seventeen. From that time, these are, these are among Jesus' first recorded words as he's starting his ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So what we're going to do in the weeks ahead is we're going to have a difficult conversation about that. What does that mean? What does that look like? What does it mean to repent, which is to turn? What does it mean to turn from a self-centered identity to turn towards a, a truly God-centered self and, 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 and framework and way of, of living? And why would anyone want to do that? So looking ahead, here's what we're going to look at in the weeks to come. In week five, which is next week, we're going to take a look at what the Bible says about sex. And we're going to try our best to imagine what our world could be like if more people caught the vision that God casts. In week six, we're going to have a candid conversation about the rapid rise in the number of young people who are identifying in one or more of the LGBTQ plus categories. How can the scriptures help us respond with the kind of grace and the kind of truth that Jesus had? And then in week seven, we're going to have a candid conversations about safe spaces and equity. Back when there was very little disagreement about how you define the word man or woman, it was easier to develop spaces that would protect women, protect women in sports and in the workplace and protect their privacy. Does the Bible offer any wisdom about how do we not go backwards as we also now protect the unique needs of people who don't identify with traditional categories? How do we also protect all of these, these um, different uh, competing, it seems often, needs and desires? And then in week eight, we're going to be reminded of, once again that Scripture doesn't end in Genesis 3. That's where we want to land this series. What does the Bible say about this future hope that we have? And what does that mean for us right now? So that's where we're going with the last four weeks. What about today? Well, today, what we're going to do is we're going to focus our attention, as I said, in the book of Matthew. And if you're taking notes, I want to invite you to write this down. Here's what we're going to be focusing on today as we begin to turn this corner. What can we learn from Christ about responding well? What can we learn from Jesus himself about, as we're going to start to have these really difficult conversations about repentance and boundaries and these types of things, what can we learn from Jesus himself about how do we have these conversations well, how to respond well? You know, how do we even enter into a conversation about these things? When growing numbers of people, not only do they not know what, what the Bible says, they don't, they don't care. When growing numbers of people believe Christianity is actually at odds, it's at odds with their authentic self. You know, how do we have a conversation about these things when more and more people are conditioned, if you don't agree with me, I'm supposed to attack you. So... As we begin talking about building on this foundation that we've been laying now for the last three weeks, I do want to do this. I want to offer some hope. I want to offer some hope that it's actually possible, believe it or not, it's actually possible to have conversations about these things with people who disagree. During week one of our fall retreats, we almost always, during week one of our fall retreats now, um, we almost always overlap with a church called Genesis Community. They used to be called Genesis Covenant, but they decided they were going to step away from the covenant because we have different opinions about marriage. Well, last fall, I had a chance to go on a walk with the founding pastor of Genesis. And it was such a great conversation. We were able to talk about, so tell me, why, why do you believe what you believe? Why, at Emmanuel, we believe what we believe. And it was so good to have different opinions, but we were able to do it in a respectful way. 
And we were able to share that space. You know, we didn't land in the same place, but we were able to share the same space in peace. It is possible. It is possible. Sometimes we can have conversations like that. But is anybody else finding that it's getting harder and harder to find those peaceful spaces? That instead of finding that, it seems like more and more people, they're just pushing their agendas harder and harder and harder. So what can we learn about, from Christ about when we have a potential for a peaceful conversation and how do we respond when it's obvious that things are not going to go well? This passage we're going to look at today, it addresses both of those. So I'm really excited to get into this. So let's start in Matthew chapter 9, the last part of 9. I was going to start in 10, but then I was looking at it in more context, and we really can't do justice to 10 without the last part of 9. So let's look at chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. I want to let you know, too, if you don't have a Bible at home, there is a great free resource. Go to Bible.com. They have an exceptional app that you can, you can download, along with, I think it's half a billion people have downloaded this app. Isn't that crazy? Half a billion. That's a big percentage of our planet right there. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 9. Let's start with verse 35. It says, Then Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Okay, let's start here. In the example that Jesus set, so Jesus is going out, he's sharing this gospel. In the example that Jesus set, did he inspire curiosity through his words or did he inspire curiosity through his actions? Both. It's getting pretty predictable when I ask that question, isn't it? <laughs> it's both. Let's make sure we remember that as we continue on. It's, it's both, our words and our actions. All right, let's continue on, verses 36 through 38. So these crowds are gathering, and when he saw the crowds, he had what? He had compassion. He had compassion on them, for they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Scripture is so good at including so much in so few words. This is so loaded. Let's unpack it for just a bit. So people were drawn. Jesus is saying things that are remarkable. He is doing things that are remarkable. And it's drawing crowds. People were drawn to what Jesus was saying. They were drawn to what Jesus was doing. It was such a departure from the other influencers of his day. And when he saw these crowds, do you remember what he felt? He felt compassion. And it says in there that he feels this compassion. Um, it, it's, it's, it's centered in what we've been saying for the last few weeks, that, that when God looks at us, we are seen, we're known, and we're loved. It comes from that place. And this is going to be so important to remember as we continue into these really hard conversations of the week ahead. Everything God does comes from that place. It comes from a place of seeing us, knowing us, and loving us. Keep that in mind. All right, well, we're very intentional in this series of placing it right after the one that came before this. 
the series that came before this. If you missed the series that came before this, I want to encourage you to go back and listen online. It's a series about religious people whose zeal for religion can blind them to the negative impact that they're having on people that God sees and knows and loves. I love this reminder from Preston Sprinkle. He says this, those of us who are at home in our bodies have no clue what it feels like to look at your body in a mirror and think that you're looking at another person. To look at people of the opposite sex and say, that's me. Let's make sure our posture is soaked with humility as we analyze the science of some people's lived experience. I want to lead with this because there's a lot of influencers on the right that aren't pausing deeply to think about what it would be like to be in that situation, to have that experience. And there's influencers on the left that aren't pausing deeply to reflect on how their words and their actions are causing very real harm as well. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because we just read that in Jesus' day, there were these people who, he, it, it, the Bible describes as, it was like, as if they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, it's interesting that the Bible would say that because in Scripture, the word shepherd often refers to leaders. It was a very common term for leaders. Were there a whole lot of leaders in that time? Yes. Yes, a whole lot of them. There's emperors. There were kings, there were governors, centurions, Pharisees, Essenes, priests, zealots, Sadducees. There were all kinds of leaders. There were people in positions of influence, but they weren't good shepherds. There's a difference between having that title of leader and and being a good one. Shepherd is such a rich imagery, isn't it? So rich. What do shepherds do? What do good shepherds do? They guide their flock to green pastures and still waters. Good shepherds care for those who are hurting. Good shepherds protect their flock from predators. And good shepherds, they help the lost find their way home. (laughs) Anyone see any need for more good shepherds today? From that place of compassion, Jesus says to his disciples, He says this to people he's been investing in. He says, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Do you remember what he says then? He says, earnestly pray. Earnestly pray for the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest. That is worth noting. I want to invite you to write that down. All right, what can we learn from Christ about responding well? Number one is pray earnestly. What does Jesus invite us to do? Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly. He says, pray. Pray for workers who are going to bring hope. Pray for workers who are going to embody his mission and message. Pray for workers who will restore what is broken. And then what comes next? He says, pray. And then we move into chapter 10. Let's look at verse 5. Because verses 1 through 4, it's all about, here's the people he called. He calls 12 men, and then he does this. After saying, all right, earnestly pray. For the, for the Lord to send workers in the harvest. Then he does this. These 12, Jesus did what? Sent out. He just told them to pray that God says somebody. Who's the somebody? It's them. It's them. Jesus told them, go and be these examples that the world needs to see. I think we've talked about this before. 
So many times when God invites us to pray, so many times he invites us to be part of the answer to that prayer. If you're taking notes, then I invite you to write this down too. What can we learn from Christ by responding well? Right? Pray earnestly and answer the call. Answer the call. In chapter 10, Jesus specifically instructs these disciples to start with, quote, the lost sheep of Israel. Those were his instructions for those disciples at that time. Well, if you fast forward to Acts 1.8, he's got this different group now. Does he say, just stick with the lost sheep of Israel? In Acts 1.8, he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses, not only in Jerusalem and Judea, but you're in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, right? To the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit calls different people at different times to different contexts. We could spend the next week. This might be a great question for small groups. Where has the Lord uniquely placed you? In what context has the Lord uniquely placed you? And as you're praying, earnestly praying, what what might God be saying to you? All right, let's continue on. Verses 11 through 13. All right, here's... I hope this is helpful. I I really hope it is. All right, here here comes Jesus now. He's going to give them some advice and instruction. That's better. More than advice. This is instruction. This is Jesus. He's sending these 12 out. He says, here's instructions. Verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come on it. If it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now, it's helpful. There's a, a, it's called a parallel passage in Luke, Luke chapter 10, verses 5 through 6. And there it says, find a person of peace. Find a person of peace. It's a parallel. They're talking about the same thing. A house that's worthy, a person of peace. The person that Jesus is describing here is find someone who's walking in wisdom. Find someone who is open to listening and discerning the truth. Find someone who is not trying to just hold on to and advance some sort of narrative, but try to find somebody who's open to ideas, even if the ideas are hard to hear. All right, let's go back to our notes. What do we learn from Christ about responding well? Look for open doors and for what? As I take a drink of water here. I was so stealthy with that, wasn't I? Look for open doors and receptive people. And then I have in in little quotes there, the wise. Okay, so here's this thing that I hope is really, really helpful, a framework, a framework that you can use for this and other places. I I believe it comes out of scripture. There's this guy, his name is Dr. Henry Cloud. He's the one that popularized boundaries. This is a game changer, this framework he has. In his practice as a counselor, in his practice as a consultant, as someone who studies the scriptures, he describes three different people that you're going to run into. He says, there's those who are walking in wisdom. There are those who are living foolishly. And there's those, it's just outright evil. So the wise, the fool, and the evil. A wise person is what Jesus is saying. Look for the wise person. Because what does a wise person do? A wise person adjusts to reality. They adjust to reality. They're continually listening. They're continually learning because they know my perspective is limited. I can always learn more. Now, for the record, this is really important. If someone doesn't listen to you, does that mean that they aren't wise? 
<laughs> she goes, yeah. We need to have a conversation. It may be that we have something to learn too, so be careful on this. They didn't listen to everything I have to say. They're obviously not wise. No. Are they open? Are they listening? Are they using good discernment? Jesus instructs his disciples, look for people who have the humility to listen and possibly learn. People who are intellectually honest. People who are open and receptive. Find the person of peace. Now, what's really great about this passage is Jesus also provides instruction when you encounter people who are not open and not receptive. This might be surprising to some of you if if you haven't read this passage before. Look what he gives. This is instruction that he gave his disciples when he sent them out in in this particular situation. Verses 14 to 15. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Later in this chapter, if, if you continue to read, there are times where Jesus himself, this is, these are the words of Jesus, he says, not only should you walk away, like it says here in verse 14, in verse 23, it says, you should know when to run. Which is when that old song from Kenny Rogers started playing in my head. <laughs> Especially sleep derived, right? You, know, you got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. Yeah, I mean, it's good theology right there. <laughs> it is, it's actually really, really good advice. Keep this in mind when we have these conversations. What can we learn from Christ about responding well? Number four, know when to disengage from a conversation. And there I put foolish and evil. In addition to the wise, Cloud also describes people who are acting foolishly. One of the characteristics of fools, they only learn the hard way. I was very intentional in my wording. It's going to surprise a lot of you. Very intentional in my wording on this talk point. When it comes to people who are acting foolish, they only learn the hard way. If you care about that person, there are times you have to, the conversation's done. They're going to have to learn. And what's really, really hard on this one is so many of us have people in our lives, they're acting foolishly and we want to protect them. We, we want to help. We have to figure out how do we let them learn as a teacher to a student, as a, as a, as a boss to an employee that you really care about, as a parent to a child. Sometimes as a spouse, I mean, you have to, you have to figure out how can we help them experience natural consequences because when people are living foolishly, that's the only way they learn. We continue to love them. You know, if I can only give you one piece of advice when it comes to what, what, do, you, what do you do if, if in your family there's, there's such disagreement about, about um, sexuality, you try your best not to break relationship as best you can. But boy, fools, they often need to experience the natural consequences. It's the only way they learn. So you've got the wise. They can learn from a conversation but there are those who are behaving in foolish ways and you have to sometimes discontinue the conversation and let people experience natural consequences. And then there are those who Cloud says are acting in evil ways, in evil ways. Conversations are not helpful in that situation because anything you say can and will be used against you. If you stand in their way, 
in the way of their agenda, they will attack. This past year was an eye-opener, eye-opener. My eyes have been opened to see at least a little more clearly through the eyes of people who, they're highly self-aware. And they said, yeah, I, I'm trying to find joy. I'm trying to find peace as someone who's navigating from the life experience of an LGBTQ plus experience. But I tell you this, my eyes have also been opened to agendas that are being advanced, often in foolish, but sometimes in evil ways. If you can't simply walk away from that, when you see people that are pushing agendas that are harming others, and they have zero interest in a conversation, when our compassion compels us to act in those situations, Cloud says it's lawyers, guns, and money at that point. Lawyers, guns, and money. There seems to be a song about that. I won't sing that one. (laughs) In other words, a conversation won't help. There are times when we need to pursue legal action to protect people. There are times when we need to take steps to protect ourselves and others through political means when it comes down to that. As Jesus sent his followers out, he warned them, this is not going to be easy. I encourage you to read all of chapter 10 because that was just the understatement of the year right there. Here's how one of my sources summarized what Jesus said about the opposition that his followers would face. The name of Jesus will provoke opposition and a violent response from the world at large. A persistent feature of these verses, meaning the rest of chapter 10, is the repeated assertion that the persecution arises not out of sociological factors, but because of me, meaning Jesus The disciples were sent to Jesus to face the wolves. They will be hauled up before the authorities because of me. The hatred they will experience will specifically be because of his name. People who are pushing agendas that harm others, they feel threatened by authentic Christianity because he taught us we don't take bribes. He taught us we don't give in to threats. He taught us we don't stay silent when something needs to be said. From the start, the Jesus movement has faced intense pressure to conform to the patterns of this world. Before Jesus sent him out, he said this. It's the last passage I want to read to you today. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Here it is, a good shepherd sending out sheep in the midst of wolves. So he says this instruction, Be wise as Serpents, be innocent as doves. Be wise as serpents, be innocent as doves. Let's break this down very quickly. You ready to write? Here we go. What can we learn about Christ from responding well? Don't be naive. Don't be naive. That's the wise as serpents part. Don't be naive. Jesus says to be wise as a serpent. There are two books that we recommend on our identityseries.org page that I wish we didn't have to recommend. I wish with all my heart that we could spend this entire series talking about how do we love, how do we care for, how do we welcome, how do we walk with our LGBTQ plus friends and family members. I wish with all my heart we could devote all of our time to that. But... There's a lot of Christians who have great hearts who are very, very naive. And we included two books. One is by an investigative reporter who's not a follower of Jesus. 
and another is by a feminist who often finds herself on the opposite side of issues from Christians. They document and they cite sources for agendas that are being pushed that are hurting a lot of people. We can't be naive because people are getting hurt. Serpents were symbols of cunning and serpents were symbols of street smarts. So here's what's important. As we try to take on these difficult situations, the Bible says be wise as serpents. It doesn't say be deadly as a serpent. That's why we had that other series first before this one. I love this. One of my sources said this. Be cunning without the venom. Isn't that good? Be cunning without the venom. Jesus said, be wise as a serpent. He also said what? He said, be innocent as doves. Not either or. This is both and. Be wise as a serpent and isn't a dove. So here's one way to make that practical. Number six. What can we learn from Christ about responding well? Be consistent. You want to be innocent as a dove? Do the best you can by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit to be consistent. The title that I gave this message is The Consistency Covenant. The more that I read, the more that I listen to people, the more that I watch, the more I see a lot of inconsistency about what people claim to stand for and what their actions reflect. It's as if these things apply to their opposition and don't apply to them. And this is on both sides of this. And also on the part of people who innocently are not thinking, wait a minute, am I being consistent here? Consistency is such an important part of this conversation. It, 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 as we go into these next several weeks, almost everything that is said, consistency plays into this. It's such a big thing, which makes me wonder, could we develop some sort of consistency covenant, which we could use as a starting point as we have conversations with, with schools and school boards, at, at our workplaces, among friends, at home, when it comes to legislation, what if we could come up with some common sense things that we could agree on? Let's all be consistent on these things. Let's all work from these values. And then we work from there. So here are some examples. These aren't really well wordsmithed, but here's just some examples of what I'm talking about. Take something like facts. What if we could just agree? If we're gonna have, if we're, as we're going to try to navigate this world, we're, we're on one continent, right? Hawaii, kind of, if you're watching there, right? Facts, what, what, if, what, if, what if we try to find some agreement here? For example, facts. What if we could agree? Facts are our friends, and we make every effort to avoid exaggerating, embellishing, distorting, or omitting relevant facts that support a particular position or narrative. Can you imagine how things would change if we all would agree to do that? Or what about this one, accountability? We agree to hold ourselves and those we normally align with to the same principles and standards we hold others to. What if, when it came to using the Bible, that we all would agree Bible passages should not be taken out of context? What if we would all agree we're not going to highlight specific sins and then not talk about other ones? What about with language? When we, what if we could agree to something like this? When we share common definitions, words are helpful. When people begin ascribing their own meanings to existing words, communication is more likely to break down. We will do our best to clarify rather than confuse with our words. This may require the creation of new words for new concepts, discoveries, or categories. How about this one? Parental guidance and consent. What if we could agree 
that undermining the parent-child relationship can cause significant long-term harm. What if we could agree we recognize the importance of including and supporting parents in decisions that affect their children? This is especially true when children are minors. How about this one? Medical decisions. This seems like such common sense, especially this one. Parents and their patients, if the patients are children, should be informed of the risks and side effects associated with a particular treatment. Imagine if we had a tool like this that we could anchor to. Some sort of common sense covenant that we could make with one another that could provide common ground that we could work from. We could include statements about taking both consideration for individuals and the larger group into consideration. We could provide some common sense guidance around what public schools should and shouldn't be teaching or doing. What if we could be helpful with creating some tool that would help us to say, let's avoid stereotypes as best we can and acknowledge personal biases and calling for consistency in mental health practices. I think there might be something worth exploring here. So I want to sincerely invite you to join me in praying. Is this something that we should try to put some more time into? Well, as we begin to bring this teaching now to a close, let's be innocent as doves. The word instructs us, set an example by doing what is good, even if others don't. Let's strive for there to be integrity between our words and our actions so that, as the scripture says, quote, those who oppose us may be ashamed because they've had nothing bad to say about us. That comes from Titus 2, 7 through 8. In the weeks ahead, we're going to look at some really difficult passages Verses that a lot of us wish weren't in the Bible. Remember, 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 remember. They're given to us by a creator who sees us, knows us, and loves us. Two closing thoughts before we go there. Thought number one, let's all do our best by God's grace to apply these instructions that Jesus gave to the disciples, the ones that we just walked through. Let's pray earnestly. Let's respond to his call to go. Let's remember different situations call for different responses. And in all situations, let's do our best to be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So that's thought number one. Here's number two. And let me set it up with a story. At the end of camp, we set out evaluations on all of the campers' chairs. And we asked them, give us your honest feedback. We would love your suggestions about how can we make this camp even, even better. And in the category of highlights, one of our students wrote, they said, best part of the whole weekend for me was a chance to pray with my leader, who was a good shepherd during the communion service. And here's what they said. This is, I think, pretty close to a direct quote. I knew they wouldn't interrupt me as I explained my thoughts. I knew they wouldn't interrupt me. So many good things happen when we don't interrupt one another. I'm seeing a lot of nods here. Maybe some of you are nodding on the other side of that camera. Isn't it a great way to honor someone when you hear them out? Isn't that a great way to learn when we really listen? What a gift. What a gift that you can give somebody when you're fully attentive to them. What a gift that you can receive when someone really listens to you. Let's pray for God to send people like that into the, to the, to the fields because the harvest is plentiful and there's people that are waiting for someone that's really going to listen to them.
say yes to that call for us all to become better at that ourselves. But here's this closing thought that I want to leave you with. I want to encourage you to write this down. Before you speak, will you take a close look at the example and teaching of Christ? And will you listen to the Holy Spirit without interrupting? In the weeks ahead, we are going to go to some really challenging places. And no matter how hard we try to craft these messages, we're going to get triggered. We're we're going to say, there's no way the Bible could possibly say that. Or we might also get triggered in the sense of someone says, okay, here's a biblical principle. I think this is how you could apply it in this situation. There's going to be times we don't even want to listen to that. We're going to get into some areas that are gray. And we'll do the best we can to say, here are biblical principles but we're going to have to have conversations around what does it look like in this specific situation? Will we listen to the Holy Spirit without interrupting? God, what are you saying? I'm going to read this word, not saying you couldn't possibly say that. That's what I invite you to do. And as you do, remember, everything in the Bible comes from someone who sees you, loves you, knows you. Several places the Bible says, don't be wise in your own eyes. In the weeks ahead, can I get a commitment right here, right now that we'll do the best we can to to have a, a humble learning posture, especially the voice of the Holy Spirit? If you're in, can I hear you say I'm in? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you. We all have so much to learn. A lifetime won't be enough. Lord, we do pray that the Spirit of Christ with all of his humility and love and grace and truth, Lord, that you'd fill us with that spirit. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.